you have a Bible, please make your way to Acts chapter 4 with me this morning. That'd be wonderful, Acts chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible with you, then there should be one in a rack in some of the seats in front of you. Uh, But we're going to spend our time in Acts chapter 4 today. This is what the historian Luke recorded for us in this book discussing the Acts of the Apostles, the history of the early church after Jesus went back to be with his Father, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. What makes a great church? Is it the staff? Is it the preacher? Is it the people? Is it the music? The hospitality? The amazingly hip vibe? especially when you have Kyle playing electric guitar? Is it the lights or the production quality? Is it the quality of the coffee that some of you are drinking or the lack thereof? Is it whether the people you seem to uh, like are actually present? Is it how comfortable and inviting the environment is? There are many answers that people give in response to what makes a great church. I read a blog written by Tom Rayner recently. He is the leader of an organization called Lifeway, which produces some wonderful Christian resources for the church. He was writing in response to a recent survey that was done by Pew Research, and they set out to discover the behavioral patterns of church attendance and non-attenders, so attenders and non-attenders, in 2014 by interviewing more than 35,000 adults. It's one of the largest and broadest scaled studies ever done of the church in the United States. And here are the top seven reasons people gave for why they would choose a church. So basically, it's a priority list on what they think makes a church great. Number one, 83% of the people responded and said quality sermons. Number one answer. Number two, feeling welcomed by leaders, so hospitality, 79%. Number three, style of services, 74%. Number four, location. Number five, kids ministry, 56%. Number six, having friends and family in the congregation, so relationships, 48%. So less than half wanted their friends and family there. (laughs) And number seven, because you can't have six in a church service, number seven, opportunities to serve, 42%. All of these could be unpacked much further, 
When I, read, when I read the article, that's what I thought. I wanted to know more detail. For example, what are quality sermons, for example? Are they determined by the sermon's biblical accuracy? By relevancy? By how engaging it is? How entertaining it is? How Christ-centered it is? How gospel-centered? How theologically accurate? What makes a quality sermon? But generally, if we look at all seven of these... The seven are quality sermons, hospitality, style, location, kids' ministry, relationships, and serving opportunities. These are the ingredients for a great church, at least in people's eyes. It's a decent list, right? It's not bad. Uh, These are important studies, actually, because they offer us insight, and they let us know really what our culture tends to think broadly. Maybe it's reflective of our church family. Maybe it is in some ways and not in others. And these studies can help us know where our blind spots are in disciple-making. These studies can also tell us where we're doing pretty well in our disciple-making. And certainly what will happen, as has already happened, I'm sure, is that churches will take this study and try to improve in these specific areas so they'll appeal to more people and grow. And that's an important goal. But that would be missing what's most important. What's most important is how does our list compare to God's list? What is on God's list for the ingredients that make up a great church? See, because we aren't trying to build a great church in the eyes of people, so other people say, well done, you've served us well. It's not a bad goal, and that's certainly something that we try to do, however, We are trying to build a great church in the eyes of God. This is better. So he will say to all of us collectively, well done, good and faithful servants. That matters more. So as you think about this question, what makes a great church in God's eyes, what might have been missing from this list? May I suggest... That according to the word of God, I would suggest that a great church is a praying church. And that more than 42% of the people should have responded as such. I'm hoping that that would make the cut on our lists. A great church is many other things other than a praying church, but according to God's word, this is certainly one of them. We tend to assume that prayer is a natural and normal part of the Christian's life. And that is a very dangerous assumption. Because the truth is, if we all just kind of pulled one another and had open and transparent conversation, there would be many in this room this morning where you would say, you know what, this is a natural habit, rhythmed part of my life. And there'd be many others that say, I struggle here. I struggle here. This is the final week of a three-week series on prayer. We could talk much more about prayer and fasting, but the reason why we did this series to start the year is because we want to establish a pray-first rhythm as a church family. When we get up in the morning, we want to establish a rhythm to pray first. When we have a decision to make, pray first. When we're facing uncertainty, pray first. When there's conflict in our relationships, before we have The discussion, pray first. God wants us to do more than simply hear about prayer through this series and hear that it's something that is important to his church family. He wants us to follow through. Just like with our children, 
Obedience is not obedience until we have taken action. And so that is what is required. So we must ask ourselves, are we? It's what I've been wrestling with this week. Are we a praying church? The church is simply a group of Christians. So we could personalize the question, are you a praying person? Are you praying with your spouse and for your spouse? Are you praying with your kids and grandkids and for your kids and grandkids? Are you praying with a community of believers and for one another in the context of community? I hear some incredible stories of prayer in this place. So I know a lot of this is happening, but I know that we can continue to grow in this area of our lives and in this area of our church. And I know that this is a worthy goal this year, that we would be known as a church and a people of prayer. The book of Acts tells us the story of the early church, and the early church was a great church. Not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a great church. And I believe that it was a great church because of the fruit that it produced. So what is the fruit that it produced? It produced other churches. How can you tell whether a church has been useful for the kingdom of God at making disciples? Well, it has produced other churches as it has produced other followers of Jesus. And that's certainly what the church, the first church in Jerusalem, did. And Luke, the author, made it clear that an essential aspect to the life of that church was prayer. So let me take you on a brief journey to catch you up on the text that we're at in Acts chapter 4 today. So right after Jesus appeared to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 for the last time, he gave them some instructions, and then he ascended to be with the Father, he literally, before their eyes, in their presence, went to be with his Father in heaven. And what was it that his followers chose to do immediately following that event? They prayed. They prayed. You'll see the pattern soon. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And when they had entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now Jesus' own half-brothers, Mary's other sons, have come to faith as they had seen the resurrected Jesus. So what happens is the Holy Spirit then comes in Acts chapter 2. As they're praying and waiting, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preaches to many, many people, thousands of people, and 3,000 trust in Jesus as Messiah as a result of his sermon and the church is launched. And so what did that early church do? Anyone? Okay, we got about three so far. We're moving towards 100% participation. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All right, then as they started getting into the habits of daily life, Acts chapter 3, what did they do? They prayed. Acts 3.1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So they were going to prayer together. Peter and John and the other saints, they're going to prayer, and as they're heading their way into the temple, and as they're walking up there, they come across a lame man who had been that way from birth. 
they end up healing this man. We talked about this two weeks ago, and as a result of that healing, many people were astonished, and so they said, this man's healing was not of our doing. It was because of the power of the name of Jesus Christ that he was healed. And then Peter again went on to share about Christ. More came to faith, and as a result of that, the religious leaders of that day within the Jewish society, they took Peter and John and they imprisoned them. They brought them out of prison for fear of the crowds. They threatened them. They sent them on their way. And then when they went back to be with their friends, this is your last shot. What's the thing that they did first? They prayed. Good job. (laughs) Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer is an essential aspect of the church's life and our lives. It is essential to our spiritual vitality. We cannot say, I am a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus. Prayer just isn't my thing. I connect with God in other ways. I connect with God through spending time in the word, I connect with God through maybe listening to music. I connect with God through creation. But prayer, that's just not the way that I kind of personally connect with God. And so that's why I don't really like to do this. The point is, it was Jesus' thing. And because it was Jesus' thing, that means we must grow to make it our thing. A disciple means a learner or a follower. And so if we are choosing to be followers of Christ, then the spiritual aspect of his life, even the ones that aren't natural to us, ought to become the spiritual aspects of our lives. That's what spiritual growth looks like, that we become more and more like him. So we spoke about this two weeks ago, and I want to remind us of the purpose of this prayer that we see in verse 31, because it comes right up against where we're going to pick up the story in verse 32. And it's a, it's a little bit of a pause before 32. It's definitely not the same day or same scene. But notice in this prayer in verse 31, there were some things that we talked about a few weeks ago. So they were just arrested. They were put in prison. They're released. They're threatened. And they did not pray that they would not spend more time in prison. That's what I would have prayed. I don't want to go back to that place. I don't want to be caught again. I don't want to be under this persecution. God, rescue us from that. It's interesting, their prayer, it was not for their comfort. It was not for their well-being. It was not against their enemies. It was not for their own security. What was their prayer? I just read it in verse 31. It was that they would speak the word of God with boldness, which would bring more persecution. This church was committed to prayer. And they were committed to something else that we see here in verse 31. They were committed to prayer and they were committed to the word. That's another item, by the way, on the list of what God thinks makes a church great. A commitment to prayer and a commitment to his word. It took boldness to stand up for the word of God in the Roman Empire. There was much that could happen to you, to your family, to your job, to your livelihood. It took boldness to speak the word in a culture back then that did not think the word was relevant, didn't think it mattered, didn't think it was true. It was a culture that thought the people who believed in this word were foolish, archaic, and irrational. Sounds a lot like today. So many people, when they think about this book, they think the people who believe that this is true are archaic, 
irrational, outdated. You don't believe me? Just tell someone that you believe that this is absolute truth and see how they respond. Our culture's made us very aware how they will respond. It's the same today. A commitment to prayer and a commitment to the word. They're the things, these are the things, these are two ingredients on God's list, and so they must be on ours too. And so here's the question we want to explore for the rest of our time together today. What does a church look like when it is committed to prayer and committed to boldly proclaiming the gospel? Boldly proclaiming the resurrection. Boldly proclaiming the word. What does a church look like when it is committed to prayer and the word? And Luke answers that in three ways. And these, this is what our church should look like. It's, it's basically a, a list of things that ought to demonstrate our faith family. Here's the first, that we will meet one another's needs. A church committed to prayer and committed to the word will end up, the result will be that they will meet one another's needs. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So they had unity of heart. In the scriptures, heart refers to the wellspring of our being. It's the foundations of our spiritual lives. It's the place where we choose our affections. So the church was united in the deepest part of its being. It didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter what came their way. At their core, they knew they were connected to each other. They were also of one soul. It means that they shared the same basic mental focus. They were on the same page, so to speak, on what ultimately matters in life. They had one soul. They were a spiritual family with a common goal. They were committed. And as a result of this unity we find here, there was no disunity. Our, our church family is... is we're grateful about this, that Woodside has been a place of unity. And unity is something very hard to have, it's very hard to maintain, it's easy to lose, and it's almost impossible to regain. But what's incredible about this early church is that they had unity, and just a few days before this, 3,000 people came from all over everywhere to make this church up. Let me just paint that picture for you for a moment. In Acts chapter 2, it says where the Jews and all these people had come from when they heard Peter preach, and these are the people that comprised that early church. It says in verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamph Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. The point is, different languages, different customs, different standards, different expectations, completely different cultures. They came from all over the Roman Empire. So, so when they came together, they were not all of the same anything. <laughs> they had so much difference. And yet when they came together, they were unified. How could that be? Their unity was not based on the fact that they carried the same Bible, that they spoke the same, dressed the same, voted the same, liked the same schools, shopped at the same malls, liked the same music, had the same bands on their iTunes list, whatever it is. They, they, they didn't do any of those things, not at all. To force conformity on things like that actually births disunity. 
And yet they were unified. They were unified because of their common heart, their common soul, their commitment, their mental focus on the gospel. In Acts 4 then, this church grew to more than 5,000, it says men, not including women and children, which would have been thousands more. So their unity centered on Christ and the ways of Christ, and that's what matters most. All the other issues that we get worked up about, all the other issues that we fight about, talk about, have opinions over, they are distant, distant second places. A.W. Tozer, a wonderful author, wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. He talked about this. He talked about the unity of the church we see here as they met one another's needs in Acts chapter 4. This is what he wrote. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to one another, or to another standard, to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to turn their eyes away from God and to each other. Here's the idea. If we want to stay unified, the way that we stay unified is the fact that if we gaze upon Christ, if we are focused upon Christ, if we are trying to follow the ways of Christ and understanding the ways of Christ, then we will be closer and nearer to one another relationally than if we were to sit across the table and stare one another in the eye. What is the problem for why sometimes our relationships struggle so? Why is it so often that newlyweds, after their first year, they say, that was the worst year of my life. We fought more in that first year than I ever thought possible. Because our culture says you need to sit across the table and stare at each other and learn each other. Different opinions, different perspectives, different expectations, different backgrounds, different struggles, different everything. How do we stay unified? Not by staring at one another, but by staring at Christ. And as we follow Christ, guess what? We'll start to act towards one another the way that he would act towards us. And that will guard and protect our unity. We must guard it. When people talk about this place, when they talk about one another, let this never be a place where we, don't, where, where we do discouraging things to one another, disunity, building, growing type things. We're meant to be a unified body because we are committed with the same heart and soul. The reason that this church had this was because of Christ, and as a result of it, look what happens in verse 32. So no one, because of this unity, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So first, let me be clear. This is not a picture of first century communism. Many people think that. It's not a joke to many. They say, you want to be like a church? That means you have to go sell all your stuff, drop it off at the church so they can abuse the money. <laughs> Some people take it that way. So they say that this is a communistic economy. 
that's being described here. That's not it at all. Let me share with you the vital difference that we find in the book of Acts. The generosity we find in the church is always voluntary. It's never forced. Even in Ananias and Sapphira, which is a story that comes later, you remember the story? A man and woman, they sold their property, they brought the money to the apostles, and they said, here's the money for the property. The problem was they sold the property, they kept some of the money for themselves, and they gave some of the money to the church, but then they lied to the church. As a result, they died. It's a pretty devastating impact to their sin. And yet, what's interesting is that the apostles said to them, if you would have sold the field and just given us a portion, that's fine. Nobody made you sell the field, and nobody made you give us the money. But if you're going to give us the money, don't lie about what you gave. That was the issue. It was not forced. It was not coerced. It's a personal decision based on the burden that God puts on individual hearts within the family. And so these Christians still had, and we know this to be true, they still had personal possessions. Where did they meet all these churches in the New Testament? In houses, in houses they owned. So so people still had their possessions, they still had their homes, their giving was optional, but this giving that went above and beyond their regular giving, above and beyond what was expected within the Jewish culture of the day, they celebrated that, although they didn't force it. The The point, though, is that they took care of each other. That was the point. They took care of each other. They looked out for each other. They functioned like a healthy family. They were generous. They met one another's needs. I was just talking with one of our gentlemen a couple days ago. He's been struggling with various issues over the last many months. And as we spoke and as I prayed with him on the phone, I haven't done much with this man, to be honest with you. I've talked with him, met with him a couple times, prayed with him. But as I prayed with him, and then when we were closing our conversation, he, he began to cry over the phone, and he said, over the phone, and he said, I just don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for this church family. And he was talking about people who have brought him meals. He's talking about students who have gone over to his house to help him out with things. He's talking about people who have sent him cards. He's talking about people who have called him. He's talking about people who have told him they have prayed for him. His needs have been met. And when people's needs are met in that kind of way, it's powerful. It was a couple weeks ago in my own neighborhood group, there was an individual who was praying about a job decision. And as he prayed about there, as he asked for prayer over the job decision, we all kind of said, well, let's pray right now. So we went over to him. We had all the men lay on hands just, just as an act of support. And we had a few of us pray for him. The, the wives that were there, they came and they just laid hands on as well. And we prayed for him, and once we finished the prayer, his wife was weeping. She said, never in his life has he ever had a group of men pray over him. She said, we didn't know that church community could be this way. Something that simple. We meet each other's needs. I hear these stories all the time. I hear these types of things all the time, but the point is, if you have spiritual needs, what's necessary is community, and if you're not in community, but you're still struggling, why do I have all these spiritual needs? You have to plug into community so those needs can be met through the family. It's an important aspect to our faith. So if we're committed to prayer, and we're committed to proclaiming the word, then we will meet each other's needs, and you can't meet people's needs if you don't know people. (laughs) It starts in our families. It extends to our neighborhood groups. It goes beyond that into our communities, but we meet 
needs. What does the church look like when it is committed to prayer and boldly proclaiming the word? We'll meet one another's needs and we will proclaim the gospel story. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So they preached the resurrection with great power. The Greek word power means dynamite in our language. It meant that there was a dynamic, explosive, divine power that was expressed through the preaching of the gospel. And as the the gospel then went forward, the truth that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, as that was spoken with power, with great power, then God's great grace fell upon people. Basically what happened, people's lives were changed. They preached the gospel and people's lives were changed. They had received and experienced forgiveness. They understood God's grace. That's how you receive God's grace. There's only one way to receive God's grace, that you believe in the one who he sent to bring us grace. That through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, we, unworthy, undeserving, undeserved favor, that's what grace means, we receive the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what faith is. And so they preached with great power, and God's great grace fell upon them. See, it's easy for us, I was thinking about this this week, it's easy for us to share stories about ourselves. We do it all day long. Now, we love to do that. That's what we do as human beings. We come home or whoever we're hanging out with, whoever our friends are, our social circles, online, whatever it might be. Here's what I did today. Here's what happened. Here's what's going on. Here's the drama I'm into. And we share those stories. And for the most part, people are willing to listen to our stories. Why? Why do people want to listen to us share our stories about our lives? So they can then talk about their lives, right? I'm going to talk to you, and so, okay, I've done a good job listening. That means now you have to listen, and now I'm going to talk to you about my life. We love talking about ourselves and our lives to other people. This is what we do. But the minute you start to share a story about how Jesus has changed your life through the gospel, which is proven to be true by the resurrection, and that Jesus can actually help them too, all the anxieties start setting in. We need God's grace so that we will have the boldness to proclaim the only story that really matters. We need God's grace for that, don't we? Sometimes I think we shy away, right? We let our cultural sensitivities and everything else talk us out of sharing about the story that has changed our lives and the only story that actually has the power to change someone's eternal home. We need boldness of God's grace. We need his grace to give us that boldness to share. How did the church end up taking over the greatest empire the world has ever seen spiritually? (laughs) That's what Rome was at the time. It was God's grace and the people in the church with the courage to talk about God's grace. To so many Christians, talking about Jesus is stressful and hard and difficult and it's like a wall goes up. Can I simply suggest to all of us here this morning, friends, that we must realize that talking about Jesus should be anything but stressful. Do you know why I know that? Because I know for me and for you, it's so easy for us to talk about people we love. It's not hard for me to talk about people I love. I do it all the time. Talk about my kids. Talk about my wife. She talks about me when she's happy with me. 
it's few and far between, but no, I'm just kidding. But when you love someone, it's natural and easy to talk about them. If we love Jesus Christ, it does not need to be some kind of uncomfortable thing. It's just natural. It's a man who changed my life. I love him. He can change yours too. Let me say this to you, friends. There's someone in your life that needs to hear the gospel story from you. I don't know who, I don't know when, I don't know how, but God put his story in your heart for a bigger purpose than yourself. He put his story in your heart for something further and bigger and greater and much more glorious than just your eternity. Although that is glorious and although that is miraculous, he put it there for the sake of others. And was it just the select few who were proclaiming the gospel here? It says God's grace was upon them all. Not just the guy on a stage. It was everybody. What does the church look like when it is committed to prayer and to boldly proclaiming the word? We meet one another's needs. We'll proclaim the gospel story. And a third point briefly, we'll encourage each other. We'll encourage each other. Look at verse 36. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. I bet you didn't know that Barnabas' real name was Joseph, which means son of encouragement. It's interesting that they gave him this name. They gave him this name based on his spiritual gift, based on how he functioned in the church family. And it says that Barnabas was a Levite, that's the priestly tribe of Israel, a native of Cyprus, a big island to the west of Israel, and that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So how did Barnabas, this is the first time we're introduced to him in the book of Acts, how did he express this encouraging spirit that was so natural to him? The first way he did it was through generosity. But later on, he did it in many other ways, as he served John Mark, as he empowered leaders, as he encouraged other people. And what his life shows us is that encouraging people are empowering people spiritually. When you have someone in your life who is an encouragement to you, then you typically walk away from that feeling like, you know what, we can do this. Now I feel stirred on, uh, stirred up towards love and good deeds, what the author of Hebrews says. Now, now I feel like I can follow through, I can do this. They, they help build your strength through the Holy Spirit as they encourage you. That's what Barnabas was amazing at. And this is what we're supposed to do for one another. This is what prayer does. This is what the word does. It convicts, yes. It, com it commands, yes. It challenges us, yes. If we never feel challenged by the word or through a sermon, th th then, we're not, then we're not doing it right. But it does more than those things. It encourages us to proclaim and demonstrate our faith. It's an encouragement. It's hopeful. So Joseph's nickname was Barnabas, son of encouragement. What nickname would the apostles give you? That's a good one, son of encouragement. What would yours be? Let me also say this as we close this morning. Just as God has placed someone in our lives that needs to hear the gospel from us, and that's actually why that church, that early church was so powerful because they were committed to that. In the same way, there's someone in your life specifically that needs encouraged by you. There's someone in your life that needs 
grace extended to them by you. Who is that someone? Who needs grace extended to them by you? Your kids need it. Your spouse needs it. Your boss needs it. I need it. You need it. People everywhere need grace. People far from God, people close to God. Everyone needs grace. And the gospel of grace is not some small story. It's the good news for everyone and every day. There's someone in your life today that needs you to extend them grace, to encourage them. Sometimes we withhold it because that allows us to have power over them. Sometimes we withhold it because we're angry, because we feel justified. And yet this is not the church that is the great church. The great church committed to prayer, committed to the word, will meet one another's needs, will proclaim the gospel, and will encourage each other. This is who we want to be. This is who I hope we are. This is who I hope we can grow into. And I hope you'll join me in that this year.